All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What the fuckadelics? What the fuckaholics? What the fuck knuckles? Huh? Where'd that one come from? What the fuckleberry fins? All right, then. This is Mark Marin. This is WTF. Good morning. Good evening. Good afternoon. Uh, how's everything going? How are you doing on the treadmill, on your run, in your car, in your cubicle? How is it? How is it for you today? Is it okay? All it needs to be is okay. Okay? Okay is good enough. Let that be your slogan. You want to be happy? Fine. But if you can be okay, I think you got more going for you. Okay is good enough. Is good enough enough? Sometimes. Is happy a lot to ask for? No. But is it a lot to expect all the time? Yes. All right. Hey, first of all, if I could tell you, uh, my paperback, the paperback of Attempting Normal is now available where you enjoy buying paperbacks. Uh, I I love the cover. If you didn't get the hardcover, the paperback's nice. It's exciting. If you see me somewhere, I'll sign it for you. Uh, may, some people are talking about maybe, maybe uh, making a poster of that cover. Maybe the publishing house will make a poster of that cover and we can uh, get hold of some of those. But uh, Attempting Normal, now available in paperback at... Uh, bookstores booksellers of all kinds now okay what else have i got to tell you it's a weird week friends i i mean we had a a strange coincidence occur i had been wanting to talk to jason reitman for a while i i enjoy his films uh he's made he's made many great movies uh in my opinion uh he did juno he did thank you for smoking he did up in the air I uh, did not see his last one, uh, Labor Day, but uh, I enjoy his films. And as many of you know, he is the son of Ivan Reitman, uh, the, the producer of Animal House, the director of Ghostbusters, Stripes, Meatballs, Dave. Uh, he's got a new film that I, I watched uh, called Draft Day. Uh, I watched a screener of that. He's, a, he's one of the biggest directors. And Jason is uh, a director in his own right and Ivan's son. So... I have uh, Jason booked for weeks, months perhaps, to come talk to me. And then out of nowhere, we get the opportunity to, uh, to interview Ivan. So I figure, let's, let's do Father and Son Week. Why not do that? Uh, it's not something you know I can do. I used to be able to do it. But uh, it was a thrill to talk to Jason because you know his father is who he is. But Jason has defined himself in his own right. But also has a, a, a pretty tremendous relationship with his father. You know, his father is a director. He's a director. Uh, and, you know, he was up against a lot of challenges being the son of a of a of a big director. You, you know, their nepotism does not necessarily uh, go over well uh, amongst people. There could have been the possibility for a stink on uh, on Jason, you know, coming into directing. But he really cut his own path. And I love his movies. And his father and uh, he actually worked on uh, Up in the Air together, which I talked more about with Ivan, uh, which you'll hear on Thursday. So Jason and I, Jason Reitman and I had a lovely conversation and it, it's, it's relevant to me because, you know, his father was able to teach him a lot. His father executed a certain amount of patience and enabled him to do what he would like to do with his life. I'm not saying my father didn't do that, but he learned, you know, beautiful gems of wisdom and professionalism and craft from his father. Now, I didn't expect that from my father. My father's a doctor. So it wasn't like, you know, he, he could pull me out into the garage and say, uh, you know, you want to let me show you how to do knee surgery. Uh, go get that kid with a limp. 
So that was not that is not the issue. The issue is at this juncture in my life, uh, my father is. Um, it, it seems like he's relentlessly furious at me and unable to uh, to forgive me for for something that it was really my my right to do, which was incorporate him into my life story in my television show uh, for two episodes and in my book for maybe three chapters. You know, as a you know, as a as a as a as a person in my life, he didn't like the way he was represented, and he made it uh, entirely about him, to the point where you know he um, he called me uh, he called me and told me uh, to go fuck myself, and that uh, he would never forgive me and fuck you, and he hung up on me. It was recently, so and knowing that he's not, you know. You know, he's consumed with anger. He's old. His wife did not go the way he wanted it to. You know, there's part of me that, you know, believes that, you know, I should be compassionate. But there's another part of me that had to deal with somebody who was relatively unstable or absent uh, and erratic my entire life. And, you know, I have to deal with that anger. Now, I can let it go. But the weird thing is, is that they can activate it almost immediately. And, you know, what I have to do you know, the challenge for me and the reason why, you know, when I talk to someone like Jason, it's not so much jealousy, but I, I envy the relationship he had with his father. I, I believe my father was, you know, reluctantly supportive, but ultimately supportive of what he what I did. He didn't really have that much choice. You know, I think he got a kick out of it, but until it became about him, and I thought it was relatively respectful, at the very least honest uh, in my characterization of him, uh, he was he's unable to contain his fury. So that's where I'm at. So now I, you know, I'm in this weird position where, you know, I, I don't I don't think that the relationship is salvageable. I don't think that, uh, you know, he, he is capable of forgiving me. And, uh, you know, and I unloaded on him last week because, you know, he told me to fuck off. So I have to figure out how to let that go. And and, you know, when I talk to somebody like Jason about his relationship with his father, now I got to make a list you know, because obviously my father and I are probably not going to be able to repair our relationship uh, because it's too uh, it's too toxic, and uh, and I don't believe it, and I just have to sort of detach and and attempt compassion for a guy that's not well. So now I got to make a list of all the good things that I got from my father. You know, there's a list of bad things I got that list, uh, you know, and I'm not happy about them. I'm not happy when I see my inner Barry come out. I'm not happy when I see, you know, behavior that that was destructive and abusive in my life emit from my brain and my mouth and my body. It's like a demonic possession to be to have that element of your father in you. To have all the negative shit that you got from your father in you, it's like being possessed by the 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 demon that is your dad. So now I got to look at all the good stuff I got from him, you know, uh, charisma, a little bit of charm. He's you know relatively witty. He's curious, you know, he's engaged, you know, and just sort of like put that on the column next to the bad shit and go, all right, let's choose the good shit and let's have compassion for the bad shit. Let's have some forgiveness for the bad shit, because quite honestly, I don't think that I'm going to be able to forgive myself or stop the behaviors if I don't say like, all right, you know, that's him. Now let me be me. Because I'll tell you, man, as soon as you engage your old man on the level, uh, you know, using the, the horrible tools he gave you, all the bad shit that you got from your dad, when you turn it on them, oddly, they shut up. 
and they take it because you know why it's like they could say you know you're fucked up just like me but there's got to be some point in there where they're like you know my kid just you know tore me a new asshole for 20 minutes that's my boy he learned it from me it's sick shit but uh today today i'm gonna try to have some compassion for my old man and let bygones be got bygones and uh and never talk to him again it's painful to have problems with your aging parents and for god's sakes for your own sake try to be compassionate try to be forgiving because you don't want to carry that nail in your heart god damn it someone get me the back of a hammer could someone get me the back of a soul hammer so i could pull this fucking thing out let's talk to jason reitman and on thursday we talked to his father ivan reitman but now we're talking to the younger reitman I turn to a guitar. Let's talk about music today. Is sure. that all right? Whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, like, it is like a, a meditative for me. Like, it's something that, you know, like, I don't, I'm not a guy that practices for hours, but I do like, you know, like today, you know, I had, like, I had a fight with the, with the girl this morning mm-hmm. and, you know, and I needed to sort of clear my head and, you know, I put on some, you know, old Peter Green Fleetwood Mac and I, you know, I played blues music and i felt better like i feel better the guitars are great for getting over a woman or getting over a fight i think that's what they're made for well that's why they're shaped like a woman (laughs) is it is that what you decided yeah honestly (laughs) because it's shaped like a woman and you hold it you hold it i never really i never really thought you can't you don't hold a piano that's right i never really thought about even hold i'm not sure if there is another instrument that you hold the same way with a guitar you you hold it and you press it against your body. That's right. And you know what your guitar feels like, whereas uh, it feels different from a foreign guitar. Yeah. And when you go into a guitar shop and right. you pick up a new guitar, yeah. it's almost like holding a new woman for as a moment. It's it is. exciting and yeah. like this thing illicit about it, and then maybe you will take her home. And, That's right. And then what happens if you start playing the new guitar too much? You almost look in the guitar... Uh, the, uh, the old guitar? Uh, the old guitar, and you feel Aww. bad. You're like, oh, I better pick up that old guitar. I, yeah. I've, I'm, you know, I'm not being good to her. That's true. And, and it's also... But there's also the, the... There's a cock component as well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like you got both things going there. You got, you got male and female. I imagine sometimes, like, I have a nice Martin. You do? That was my first grown-up guitar. Uh-huh. But then I also have, like, shitty guitars. I got, you know, uh, I got a, like, $200 um, classic guitar that's, like, check and weird. and uh, But I played a lot. It's fun to play. And I imagine my Martin looking at the check guitar what being are you like, doing? what the fuck? Like, what the same you... way girls look at other girls sure. sometimes and go, why is he with, like, what is the fuck? Is he? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that I, cheap... Why do I work so hard to look like this yeah. if that's what it, that, he's going to wind up with? That cheap whore. I have my dad's guitar from when he was a kid. Was he a guitar player? Yeah, if you can believe it, my father went to college on a music scholarship. He was in a band. They were called the Twin Tone Four. They were a folk group with a pair of identical twins, a gal and my father. Yeah. And my dad played acoustic guitar, and he had this guild that I have now that uh, is 50 years old. Yeah. And... How does it sound? It sounds pretty good. It smells better than it sounds. You know, yeah. you, you ever pick up an old guitar and like, yeah. you smell the hole? And, like, yeah, you, like, you, that you old know. wood. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it smells great. It looks great. Uh, I should put new strings on it. It has old strings yeah. on it. And uh, Have the, you gotten it tweaked? Is the action good? Is it? You the know, the you... neck is fairly bent. There was a hole that I had fixed. There's uh-huh. one hole that's kind of nice. There's another yeah. hole that needed to be fixed. Right. And I got it fixed um, down in uh, at McCabe's. Yeah, uh, uh, down in Santa Monica. Yeah. And it's fun I, to get a guitar fixed. The, my... 
Yeah, it is. Uh, like you're restoring it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and what what I what I love about that one is uh, is more to imagining my father holding it. Mm-hmm. Like my father held that guitar before I was a figment in his imagination. Before being a filmmaker was a figment in his imagination. Like yeah. so, my father went to college and was a music major, and then started a film club, and yeah. that's how he begins. Sorry, I'm not even sure. Are you going? Do you want to go? Do you want to start this or are we started? Oh, no, we're done. We're okay. started. Yeah, we're good. Good. All right, cool. Yeah. But it's interesting to know that, you know, that the evolution of the creative spirit, you know, especially from, you know, somebody who's, you know, your father or relative, mm-hmm. that, you know, early on that he was always, that his creative, his creativity was what was driving him. Right. And that, that like, there was never this, you don't have this story where it's like, well, my father was a lawyer, you know, like right. at some point, like, you know, he decided that he was going to be an artist. Well, this, I mean, that uh, his story of becoming an artist is actually quite great. And I'm going to talk to him, you know. And it says, you're going to talk to him? Yeah. Oh, when? I think tomorrow. Am I just the pre-interview for him? No, it happened coincidentally. <laughs> you really? Were booked, yeah, it was the weirdest thing. That's We've fantastic. had you on the books for weeks. Right. So, like, out of nowhere, they're like, well, Ivan Reitman might do this. I'm like, that'd be great. I'm going to talk to his son. The day I'm going to steal went. every one of his stories. <laughs> you're going to hijack Everything it? he's, he's going to go, he's like, well, it's funny you should mention. You're like, I've already heard that. Uh-huh. Do you have anything else? Yeah, your I, son's already covered I that. heard about your guild. When yeah. did you buy that guild guitar? <laughs> oh, <laughs> only ask him about music. That'd be great. <laughs> he now has an ovation, a big round back ovation. But he barely he barely gets into that. But it's fun when he does. I mean, that's that thing. And you know, anyone who's played guitar, yeah. you know, you can go away from for a year or two, and still you'll pick it up, and there'll be certain muscle memory that your left hand will still remember, your right hand will still mm-hmm. remember. And and I see that, and I know it's old for him. I know it's decades old now, but I still see his fingers sure. go to hit things and then miss things and gets frustrated. Was he good? Like, was he a picker? Was he a strummer? He wasn't a picker, he... but I think he was good. I think he got really into. Uh, different tunings and different chord structure. Oh, really? On. Yeah, I think, uh, well, again, I mean, so he was doing this in the late 60s, so those guys that you were talking about, those folk musicians... Lewin Davis ...were really time. influenced. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's what influenced the style of his play. That's amazing, because uh, alternate tunings are baffling to me. I can't... They're completely I, baffling. I've tried it with a slide, like right. the open D, I think, yeah, that yeah, some yeah. guy taught me, and it's really fun to do, mm-hmm. but I don't have the focus to sort of commit to sort of... Uh, evolving like i can evolve with licks like i can mm-hmm. learn new licks when i hear them and like phrasing right. and stuff i've gotten some growth there but the idea of sitting down and and, and practicing two hours a day do you speak to, any other languages no i think it's similar do you well i yeah i i, I speak a little bit of french because i learned it in school and my mom's french canadian but i think in english i talk in english i struggle to like work with people who don't speak English perfectly, and it is my language is what I rely on. Right. And when it comes to a guitar, I rely on a classic tuning. That's right. And also, like with language, it's almost mathematics to me. I'm not sure my grammar is that great in general. I mean, as a writer, I'm not sure. Ten- like, I think the reason I couldn't wrap my brain around language is that tenses are relatively unimportant to me. I I have a poetic sensibility. If I can get what I need to get across, across, I'm fine. But when you put it down on paper and you got to sit and figure out, you know, tenses, pronouns, you know, as is, was, all that shit. Like, there's some things that just aren't clear to me. I bet it's more important to you than you let on. Maybe. And maybe classical tense is not as important to you, but you wouldn't be a comedian and you wouldn't be interested in doing what you're doing right now if... 
Words were important to you. Words are important. Grammar's tricky. Yeah, but you're still, but you're just using grammar in an innovative way. Right. I mean, okay. you, I can the way you attack that. people, the way you make people. I mean, yeah. look, your job and my job are similar in that our jobs are to manipulate people, mm-hmm. to get people to do things that they don't want to do involuntarily. Um, <laughs> Is that it? <laughs> you have more confidence, so you go into the room with the people and do it right to them. I have less confidence, so I hide away in a cave. I make my film, and then I show it to people, and I'm not even in the room when it happens Right. Well, the, the difference there is like whether it's manipulate, like the an element of what I do is like, please accept me. <laughs> At least you have the distance to go like my movie. But if you're not telling yeah. the truth, are you saying accept me, or are you saying accept this version that I'll present? Well, no, it's a, I do tell the truth, and That's and, true. and it's like I sort of defy them. I think there's a there's a lot of sort of like you still like me now. I mean, do you understand right. me? It's my struggle to be understood and accepted. Is 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 what my creativity is compelled by. That's interesting. Now, do you identify yourself as the person on stage as a one hundred percent match to who you are in real life? Close, it's close. You know, there are things that you know over time. I've grown to realize, like that, that's not entertaining. You know. <laughs> uh, oh, I'm sorry. Did you come here to laugh and be entertained? Right, exactly. You missed the point. Yeah. I'm sorry. Bitterness, sadness, uh, inability to make a decision. Those aren't uh, those aren't entertaining ideas. That's How long a, did it take to get there? To figure that stuff out, yeah, and to to be yourself on stage and to recognize how long important time. that was, like twenty years, twenty four years right. for it to really settle in. It wasn't until I, you know, I sort of was uh, realized that the way I thought and you know the way I put myself out in the world through this podcast was something that people that some people liked. Like I don't right. think I don't think I was ever you know in it to entertain as much as I was to express myself. Right. I never thought like you know I'm a song and dance man. I thought this was the stage where I could get ideas across and 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 sort of work through my own shit and find myself. That was the that was the the the, the drive. And a big part of it was I'm going to challenge them and see if they come back and be as aggressive as possible. And the it game was is, for a while. Do you still love me now? Do you still it love me? It was for now? a while. You know, it was for a while. And you know that was in all my relationships. But that's just like you know manifesting, you know, historical family drama. So do you think you would do that romantically? No, no, I really think I didn't know how to do it any other way. And I couldn't quite understand. I didn't understand that bitterness was not a something that everybody had. <laughs> you know, I really thought that like you guys, if you just dig deeper, you've been gypped. There's an existential charade going on. Why is it that some people don't have bitterness? Because it's useless. It's just self-pity. I mean, and like if you really make an argument, uh, you're defending self-pity, it's, uh, it's, it's a wasted thing. You saw this... Um study they 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 studied each nation or uh, many nations trying to figure out who was the happiest country mm-hmm. and i think it was um either the danish or the swedish and they <laughs> oh and they tried to to drill into why they were happy yeah and the the best answer they could come up with was their expectations were lower well i think that's not there's not necessarily less competitive there's less maybe hanging on the idea of status and and uh, financial or otherwise in their culture mm-hmm. that there's no reason you can't accept life if you're relatively comfortable but if if you're if you're hard on yourself or your desires are unfulfilled i think we live in a in a culture that is you know compels us to be successful in many different ways and be competitive hmm. and if you're if you don't do that you think like you know why can't I fucking do that? Or why am I losing? Or, you know, my life isn't worth a shit because I can't get this or that. Did that help you or hurt you, though? What? That all these things that you just uh, talked the about. The understanding these things, of that? No, I, I think uh, growing up in a nation where uh, these were kind of the prescribed ideas and these are the things that, uh, that drove you, 
at the end of the day, are you happy you grew up here? I mean, did you need to live in a com- competitive environment to become the person no, you are? No, I'm, I'm not thrilled that Do I grew up with- you wish you were with, Swedish? Yeah, I maybe a little bit. Had a little bit of that in me. I, I don't think it, my, my problems are, are innately with the culture as much as they are with my own individual upbringing. You know, I, I obviously America is a very exciting place and there's a lot of things that happened here that are that are great creatively and otherwise. And, you know, there was a freedom here to do what I wanted to do once you find your way. But I do find that now as you get older, and I mean, you must experience it as well. I mean, you're directing movies mm-hmm. that, you know, when you when you finish a movie, when you've finally done gone through all the hoops to get that movie done, it's, it's got to perform. <laughs> uh, I, I strangely... I strangely don't care about that. And Really? Yeah, really. During and the making of it or in retrospect or never. And uh and I think that's probably the result of a few things. I think that's probably the result of, you know, one being the son of a director who was so successful that I knew moment one going into this job, I would never have success. Like my father, like not even an inch of it. Like the the, the sum total of all my films you, will you... never gross Ghostbusters. So it's like so that you gave up before you even started. Well, that it, that fight, anyway. And I think uh, even more importantly, I you know I grew up in a house where you know my father checked the grosses every weekend, and yeah. and that was important to him. And in that simple thing that every son does, where they want to be different and have something of their own that is not their father's, uh-huh. my journey was. I'm not going to care about how much money I make. Somehow, I have to care about something else. Which was what. Um, probably acceptance and, th- you know, similar things that you were talking about. Yeah. I think, uh, I was very aware early on that, uh, I had a chip on my shoulder as far as, uh, people presuming that, um, I probably had nothing to offer because I grew up in Beverly Hills, the son of a famous director. In the and, shadow of, uh, of, of show business. Yeah. And growing up just really, really lucky. I mean, right. uh, lucky kind of on, on, on every front, not only were my parents, uh, successful and not only were they artists and not only did I grow up in a beautiful home uh, that I grew up also in a family that stayed together in a city where families never stay together Uh and my parents were both kind of thoughtful to their approach of parenting me and really Uh cared about my happiness and were involved in my life so uh, I've been lucky my entire life that's the chip you had on your shoulder I think my chip was that fighting uh, against people's uh, interpretation of who you were the presumption that yeah I was just going to be a kind of a spoiled brat with a drug or alcohol problem who had no business making movies who had nothing to say and um, you know and and got everything for nothing Uh so I was like no, fuck you. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a great film. Yeah, I'm gonna and, be a good guy and make a good movie. And I'm gonna try to go to Sundance. I'm gonna try to go to these film festivals. Uh-huh. And uh, and it's interesting. I think that really fueled a lot of making short films and making my first few features was was fuck you. Uh, I can actually make one of these things. And then I That's made a, a few great films. thing to be fueled by. Well, I don't know. It it's, is. Uh, Come on. No, but I mean, look, uh, look, I just asked you the same question and your pr- response was, I wish I grew up in Sweden. So yeah. um, we could say, hey, it's that energy that gets us cooking. But frankly, I was very fortunate. My first three movies were all well received and, and, and two of them made a ton of money. And Up in the air and uh, thank and you. Juno. For, and Juno, and, right. Uh, and up and and thank you for something made money. I mean, I like that movie. we made for five million dollars, yeah. and it grossed uh, plenty more than that. So, uh, and I'm not as angry <laughs> as I probably was ten years ago. Certainly not as angry as I was when I was writing. Thank you for smoking. So, 
you know, my reasons are changing for why I make movies. Well, I mean, I think also as you get older and you do build up uh, your own confidence and your own vision for how you make movies, because I mean, you know, Up in the Air certainly is a stylized movie and it's uniquely yours and it was shot in a very specific way. Like, I, I bet you I could watch you know, another movie you make and know that it was stylistically yours. That's not nothing. I don't think so. I think my films stylistically are kind of hard to hard to nail down. I mean, Young Adult and Up in the Air look really different. I think the... Um... But Up in the Air and, and wait, let, let me see if I can really think about it. Well, Thank You for, for Smoking was like pretty... It was, it was satire. Yeah. And that has a different tone. Uh, because you have to balance the the characters that are in there and make sure they don't get too broad, uh, you know, for the comedy of something like that, right? Right. Um, it's interesting. I think at the end of the day, those are kind of, uh, those are the form of the movies, and what I'm less interested in uh, form. Like I, I just uh, you know I just made Labor Day, which again. I have it. I, feels, I apologize. Uh, I have it. I'm going to watch that's it. That's okay. No one's seen it. Um, but it's, Why? You know, I'll tell you why. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Uh, We're going to work back in a minute. But I you learned go a few lessons on Labor Day. Yeah. Which is actually a pretty good movie. I, it's got great actors in it. I don't know. I just like, I never, I, you know what the weird thing is, is I get the screeners, right? Yeah. And I'm going through the screeners. Yeah. And I hit Labor Day. I'm like, no one said anything about, I've not, <laughs> I've not heard anything about this movie. Right. What, how could, it's got Josh Brolin in it. How can it be, you know, how could it be bad? Why, why, and I was compelled to, and I just didn't get to it. You know, my father actually said the smartest thing about that film to me. Yeah. And he said, you know, they marketed this movie about a romance between a man and a woman, and you didn't really go into that making that movie. You made a movie about the kid uh, that's in that house. And it's true. Uh, you know, 10 minutes before the end of that movie, you don't really see Josh and Kate ever again. Yeah. It's really about this kid's story. Yeah. And there's a whole re- there's a bunch of reasons I wanted to make it, but the form wasn't one of them. I didn't. I was interested in making a timepiece. I wasn't interested in making a love story. Um, there was just some innate stuff. And I think that goes for all of them. Juno, it's not like I wanted to make a movie about teen pregnancy. It's not like I wanted no, to... No, make... no, and I didn't mean to trivialize it by, you know, by talking about about style or, or what the movie, you know, or tone of the movie. But I mean... I didn't take it as trivial. Trivializing? I... No, I think, I think a lot of filmmakers pursue things because of style. Like, I've talked to directors before who would say, I really want to make a Western. And, like, that's just never... Yeah, entered my head for well, a I second. Think Ju- Juno's hard to define, and I think it, that's what made it such a, a a great movie and a precious movie. And precious is a good word. That <laughs> because you know what you're dealing with is that the way the dialogue was structured it was tricky because you know it, it operated at a very clip pace, right? And all the characters were were very forthright, and there was a, there was a rhythm to the actual dialogue of the movie that you honored. And whether, you know, it was, uh, you know, the reality frame of it, you know, didn't really matter because the characters were so engaging and, and full of humanity that it was, it, it would have been hard to categorize that movie as, as anything other than this is a unique piece <laughs> of, of film. I mean, how do, right. like, it's not a teen pregnancy movie. It's well, a family I, movie. I it's made a- that movie for one scene. There's a scene towards the end where, uh, Juno shows up at Jason Bateman's house. Ellen yeah. Page shows up at Jason Bateman's house. They wind up in his basement, and they start slowing dancing. And you wonder for a moment if Bateman is taking a pass at her. This girl who's uh, underage and holding the unborn child, uh, carrying the unborn child that right. he and his wife are supposed to adopt. Right. And it's icky and uncomfortable. And uh, And she wanted so much to be an adult and taken seriously. And he... Uh, 
doesn't want to grow up and is terrified of becoming a father. And all that stuff plays through this weird sexual icky moment. And that I liked. And that, that, that was, was really, the, when you read it, that was what you decided. Oh, that was it. That was, I want to direct this movie. For I this need moment. to direct that scene. And the same way that up in the air is a movie about a guy showing up at a woman's door. Uh, and that was it. Uh, that's the movie. It's the whole magic trick. I mean, sometimes I'm sure you've had stories that you tell on stage where you work for 20 minutes, then it's all oh, yeah. leading up to one idea and one moment because you're, and you're taking the audience through a lot of places and often you're using, uh, all sorts of motifs that the audience is used to seeing in a movie. And you're just, that's right, come right, along with me, right. t- fall into this, come right. through that, um, start to feel these things, laugh at this, become emotional at that, just so you can get them to a point um, where it's not only George arriving at Vera's door, everyone is arriving at Vera's door. And it's not just Juno walking down into Jason's basement, it's everyone is going down into that basement uh, so that when he puts his hand on her hip as they're dancing and it's just slightly in an inappropriate place, everyone feels that. Um, and and that's the moment where the audience is either in her head or his head or both heads. And you have to look at the screen almost like it's a mirror and start interpreting all this crap that you're dealing with. So you, in your mind, you put together a film to to build up to the integrity of these poetic moments that are maybe a minute long. I mean, and everything that's going to stay with them for the days after. So, right. I mean, it's almost, I mean, it is a magic trick. I mean, so uh, if you talk to a magician about, all right, so so you developed this whole magic trick just so you could go to da. Well, it's like, yeah, it's part of it is the joy of being able to do the magic trick. Um I remember I uh, I got to meet David Blaine once and and uh and I was asking him questions about how he became a magician yeah. what what he likes doing now I mean he's right. obviously you know one of the world's greatest magicians everybody knows it and I find him a little annoying uh, well, because you don't like his persona, but at the end of the day, he's a he's an impressive okay, ma- yeah. magician, Maybe I, right? I'm glad you said it was persona. You're telling me there's a pretty good guy under there somewhere? Well, <laughs> I think there's... <laughs> look, you meet tons of people, and you talk to a lot of impressive people. Yeah. Uh, there's a persona kind of involved in everybody. Yeah. And, and he found something that worked. He's been very successful at it. It's mm. done very well for him. And underneath it all, there's a guy who worked really hard to be a great magician. And... But I asked him, take away all the other stuff, uh, how much joy do you get out of the ta-da moment? And he said he didn't really care about it. He, he, he's done it so much that now it's the, the craft of getting there and how often. I would imagine it's like a joke that you've told so many times. That well, yeah, but the actual getting of the laugh yeah. is, is not the big <laughs> is payoff. incidental. So, so there is a passion for – so it's not just about that minute, even though that's probably why I make the movie in the first place. And I judge my success by whether it worked in that moment. There is also a joy of can I become a – skillful enough filmmaker to pull off all these things to get there. So to tell the story in a way and use music in a way and get the type of performances and cut it together so that I have you through all these complicated moves to get you to that moment. But why do I say yes and why do I devote my life and sacrifice so many things in my personal life so that that moment can happen? Uh, it's, 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 it's that. And that's what sets those movies apart from the ones that I don't make. But the but the thing is is that there's no way. I mean, I understand your your uh, appe- like your attraction to that moment in, yeah. in making the movie. But to create and 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 sort of explore the psychology 
of of that Clooney character, yeah. you know, throughout the movie that you know would appear to be avoiding something or dead or inside or or, or somewhat mm-hmm. insulated emotionally, and how you do that visually, and I mean, you can't trivialize any of that. I mean, that's I'm not trivializing. I guess I make that. That's all just part of the work. And but how do you think about that stuff? I, I understand you're leading up to this moment, but when you make decisions about you know him standing in front of that board at yeah, the yeah, end, yeah. I mean, is that innate or do you storyboard? Do you? I'll do take you... it back to your earlier question about when we were talking about word choice and you said that you don't care for grammar or that it's not important to you right uh, and i think the grammar is really important to you you're using it in your own way um word choice is a tool mm-hmm. it's a really important tool and, right. and depending on a word and i've seen comedians discuss this to death before on you know you know i switch the joke i switch this one word and all of a sudden it's it a worked. timing thing yeah or or just i use the wrong word right. or i, I sure. use the wrong number sure. or i yeah. change the fruit in yeah. the joke yeah. and now yeah now it kills and um so i think being a director is involves lots of practice of making thousands of decision, decisions a day and seeing how they play out. And the first time you go to direct something, you make 10,000 decisions on that first day of your first short film, and you make 90% of them wrong. And you think you know what you're doing because you've read a lot and you've seen a bunch of movies and you think you know what a movie is and maybe you've worked on set in various capacities. But the truth is, until you've been on set... And every decision lands at your feet, and you have to decide uh, from costumes to the location to the performance to everything. I mean, when you look on a screen at the end of the day, the director said, you know, everything you're seeing, everything you're hearing, everything you're feeling, a director said yes or no or that one or three of them or right. whatever. And and I think you get so practiced at making those decisions um, it's like having a guitar in your arms and you're good enough where you're not thinking about it. Your fingers are going where they need to. So uh, so when I think about that scene that you brought up, the end of Up in the Air, he's standing there looking at the big board. Um, was there a moment where I sat down at a table and said, oh, I have to figure out this scene where he's you know, making this big decision. What kind of big board will it be? No, I saw it in my head. I had a feeling for it. I articulated that to uh, the people that I work with. They started to come back with stuff. And I look at the suit. That's maybe the right suit or the wrong suit, or that's the wrong travel bag, or that uh, the board needs to be larger and we need to be lower and we need to be on a 35, not a 40 mil. And like it just until you feel it. I'm, I'm now having feelings about that moment at the door. <laughs> what are your feelings? Well, I remember because I watched the movie several times, you mm-hmm. know, because I, you know, I, I watched it in the theater and then I, I wanted to, other people to watch it because I love the movie. And you live on the road. Or, you like, know like, what it is to. To uh, to live in hotels and live in the air, and your closest people are your seatmates and that kind of stuff. A little bit. I, I you know, I, I don't. I, you know, it took me a long time to accept it. You, you know, like it's still sort of like, oh fuck. Mm-hmm. You know, like he embraced it, right? And uh, you know, because he preferred it that way. But like, I remember having conversations about that moment because I was like, you know, fuck her. <laughs> that you know, that like my gut reaction was that, you know, like this guy finally opened his heart. Right. And it was a, a sham because he didn't, you know, follow his like there's road rules mm-hmm. and he was a victim of road rules. Right. Like he romanticized something that should have been understood. Right. And uh, I was mad at her. Do you still feel that? Um, a little bit because of what I've gone through personally in, in relationships is that, you, you know, there is fantasy and there is you know, road rules. But, you know, at some point, I think I had, I don't know if it was a fault with you. It was like, if they had spent as much time together that was suggested in the film, mm-hmm. the fact that none of them, none of their lives, you know, other than his, like, mm-hmm. you know, that he he sort of felt that, you know, she should come with him to this thing and that thing, that, that in all that time, 
the the question of what her life was didn't come mm-hmm. up. So if it did come up, she lied. <laughs> right? Um my guess, my understanding, and I don't usually think a lot about what happens off screen to my characters, is that they had an understanding about what their relationship was. And right. if you if you presume something of someone, you don't think to ask, do you have a husband or do you have do you have children or do you have a different life back where you live? After a certain point, you got to ask that shit. I guess so. They also didn't see each other that much. Okay, all right. You know, I'm not, I, I'm not, the, I'm not no, attacking the narrative No, no, logic. no, I appreciate it. Uh, I think these are two people who really only shared a life on the road, whose only life I mean, uh, was through these fleeting moments where they could live this fantasy. And what they established at the beginning of their relationship was this is all they actually wanted in life. And... And that was the beauty to their relationship. I think that's what it... Uh, I, I guess he's the guy... In my opinion, he's the guy who played outside the rules, not her. He's the guy who asked for something that they never agreed upon, not her. Well, I, I, I get that. But this is a person, like, you know, in my mind, this is a person that once she, you know, goes in that car to the airport, yeah. consciously takes her two rings off. Yeah. Okay. Or one, depending on, you know, Whatever. what kind of gal she's. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and engages in this thing. Right. So what if she's a woman who doesn't wear a ring? Okay, like a man. Yeah, but no, no, no. But I, I think that's actually a really important point. Um, there's guys I know who wear rings, and there's guys who don't. But he wasn't living a lie. He, he was not. He lying. was only. He was only lying when he showed up at her door asking for something that uh, that was not true to their relationship. Okay, uh, fine. Do you know what I mean? Like they had agreed upon. He was lying because he fell in love. Is he, what you're saying? He's lying because he. He asked for, or he demanded love. Because he felt it. He misread it. She was too good. She would have said, she would have said that love is what they experienced in their relationship, meeting at hotels and having these moments and living in the moment and not being locked down by other, you know, all that bullshit is what she would say. Well, well, that's fine. But then, you know, it's like, who are you really? Like, who are we really? I think that's a great question. <laughs> No, I do. I, I, And that's kind of what I'm asking the audience. And look, I don't have all the answers here. I mean, I'll, I think there's a lot of filmmakers who make movies because they say, I have the answer, this is it. No, and I appreciate that. The clear, I think it's better to go that way. The example is, is, you know, is Michael Moore, and, you know, in the documentary sense. But even in narrative film, there's filmmakers where you feel, you know, Oliver Stone is saying, no, this is, this is the truth, this is the answer. Right. I'm boggled. I mean, I make movies because I have questions that I want to ask and I don't know the answers. And I usually leave the characters at the end in a place of, I don't know, they don't know, and presumably the audience doesn't know either, but here's a new way of thinking about it. No, and and I appreciate that. I think that like, you know, problem solving or or going on a journey through art and through expression without having those answers is probably the way to go. Do you, you know what I mean? I don't think that, you know, controlling depending your- on what you do. Well, what you want to do. I mean, if you want to just like make money and make people laugh or make, you know, people, you know, odd, then you make other movies. I have nothing against that. But yeah, but you're dealing with the imperfections of the human spirit. Right. And and, and the challenges of the human spirit. Uh, this is at least the stuff that I, that worries me day to day. Well, yeah, but like even Juno, like the, the challenge of, of the human spirit in that, you know, like one of the, the amazing things about that movie was the acceptance of her family. You know, despite, mm-hmm. you know, what would, yeah, would no. what you Isn't would appear, yeah. yeah, but what you would think would be, you know, a really problematic thing mm-hmm. that, you know, whether it was, you know, within those characters, I think it was, um, it was grounded, but, you know, w- w- would that be the story in most cases? 
You know, probably not. No. But for the comedy and I don't for know. yeah, well, there's no reason to know. But I think that mm-hmm. was one of the great things about you know there was a lot of heart in that movie, right? Yeah, you, you know, and it, and it it made sense. It, it was not sappy. It wasn't saccharine, and it, and it could have it could have tipped that way. If Do you, you feel if you split didn't by heart and cynicism? Personally, no. I, I'm I'm a I'm I'm sort of the softy with it. I, you know I I don't mind being jerked around. Uh, you know, like in my real life, like I find yeah. that you know there the, there's a constant struggle. I'm a difficult man, so you know. But that, you don't think of yourself as cynical, though. I'm not cynical. I'm stubborn. Uh, you know, I you know I keep <laughs> I keep trying. You, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You, you know, I do I do try, but uh, I think the thing that gets me is is old patterns. Mm-hmm. And to break old patterns of stubbornness or or defensiveness is tricky. To right. open your heart is tricky, which is maybe why for, for me, yeah. And it's also like you know you got to get past your own bullshit. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's innately scary. But how many layers? How does that fear uh, represent itself in you? How complicated is that fear? Right. How do you know when you're being honest about your heart? Hmm. You know, how, how many layers of of guardedness is there? Right. Uh, I'm always surprised. Right. <laughs> you? Oh, of course. No, it's the scariest thing to No, it's the scariest thing to do. Are you married? Uh, I was. How long did that last? I was married 7 years. We were together 10 years. You got kids? I have a daughter, yeah. Yeah. And you is everything going getting along all right? Yeah, we actually do get along pretty Kinda well. Kind of have to after a point, don't you? Um, well, I think we did the work before our divorce to ensure that we would get along after the divorce. Yeah? Yeah. Well, that see that's uh, responsible and commendable. Uh, well, I think uh, we both love our daughter, and I think that's that's key to it. So, how are you in in you know, approaching relationship now? I'm still figuring it out. I mean, my story's weird. Uh, it, it very in brief, uh, when I was 16, I started dating someone who was 10 years older than me, and I moved in with her while I was still in high school, and I stayed with her for seven years. So, from 16 to 23, I'm with one woman who goes from uh, 26 to 36. 36. And then, no, 26 to 33. We were together for seven years. Yeah. And then, uh, and then we broke up and I moved into an apartment, fell in love with my next door neighbor and married her. And I was with her for 10 years. So. How uh, long in between? Uh, and I'm, no, I moved into an apartment and I started dating my next door neighbor. Immediately. Yeah. So. So you're a little fucked up. Yeah, I mean, clearly, but uh, <laughs> otherwise, what would I have to say? <laughs> Why would I make movies? But, um, uh. But yeah, I've been trying to figure out dating. Yeah, since then. So when you were okay, let's let's go back professionally and otherwise. So you grew up in Beverly Hills. Ivan Reitman's your dad. Yeah. And so you 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 you're on set probably as every long, second yeah, I can, as long as you can remember, like yeah. as far back as you can remember. I have photos of me on, as a baby on the set of Animal House. Really? Yeah. So so you grew up on set. Yes. And, if, and it was, if it was the summer, I was there every day. If it was during the school year, like Ghostbusters, uh, I would go to like New York like once a month and spend like a week. So there. you spend time, you know, you, you're watching and, and interacting with John Belushi, Bill Murray, you know, mm-hmm. you know, Aykroyd, and all these people that yeah. were in your father's movies. Yes, and you're seeing how comedy works, you know, fundamentally. Yeah, you're seeing how the repetition of film works, right? And how you know the the the, the sort of like you know draining process of and then uh, it's a job and, right it's a job that people do like it's not just right. some, this piece of magic that happens it's uh and your father's friendly to you and, and he's supportive and he yeah. loves having you around yeah that's, that's sweet you have what you have two sisters right yeah exactly. are they there too 
Uh, yeah, I have one sister who's three years younger than me. And one of them's on TV, right? Yeah, her name's Catherine Reitman. She's right. very, very funny. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and then I have a sister who's 12 years younger than me, and uh, she's, a, she's a nurse, and she just had her first baby. That's and Catherine just had her baby. They're both uh, new parents. All right, so you knew early on that you wanted to do this. Yeah, I knew... I knew from moment one, and I think there was a general understanding of kind of anyone around me, anyone where my parents, mm -hmm. that I was going to be a director. That was kind of the intention since I was like a very, very small child just hanging around set all the time. And what were the conversations you would have with your father, you know, once that became a serious... He would just say, look, you know, you can do whatever you want. And, yeah. uh, and then the most serious conversation that we got into happened when I went to college, because right around 16 or 17, I got very intimidated by the idea of being a director i think i just i that was the moment that i became really aware of the perception of who i would be if i was trying to be a director and i thought if i fail i'll be failing on a very public what, level what 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 prompted that i don't know i think i just felt the attitude or something and uh, and it scared me and yeah i went to college yeah. i went pre-med and I thought I'd be a doctor, <laughs> and because no one questions why you become a doctor. Right. And my father visited me at school. Where'd you go? Uh, at first, a school called Skidmore, which is in upstate New York. Yeah, I know. And, uh, yeah, that's a good school. Uh, and he, he's like, "What are you doing?" And uh, and I, I told him the truth. I told him, you know, I'm really scared uh, of being a director, and. He told me a story from his own childhood. Yeah. Do you have time for a story? I don't want to sure. like, waste time. Oh, of course. Time. No, I like it. I like it. Uh, I like it. Of course I have time. So I've got nothing but time. He, uh, when my father was 17, uh, he had gone to Montreal. And just to some background, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors who came to Canada with nothing. And my grandfather uh, uh, ran a, a dry cleaner and then a car wash. Did and, you know them? Yeah, no, I knew both of them. Uh -huh. And my father... My father went to Montreal and found these uh, submarine sandwich shops in Montreal that were really successful, and they weren't in Toronto. And he came back to Toronto and said to my grandparents, look, you have to give me the seed money to open up one of these places. We'll make a fortune there. They got lines going around the block out there. There's nothing like that here. And my grandfather's response was, look, I'm sure these sandwiches are really good, and if we scraped the money together, we could make a lot of money, and your mother and I would be really proud of you. But you need to find something that has magic in it for you. And it was off of that conversation that my father went to college on a music scholarship and started a film club and became one of the most successful directors of all time. And and he told me the story and and said, look, there's no more noble a profession in the world than being a doctor. And if you became a doctor, your mother and I would be over the moon would be so proud yeah. of you. But um, I don't think it's actually in your heart. I think you're doing it because you're scared. And you need to find something that has magic in it for you. And I think you're a storyteller, and you should stop being so scared of that. And <laughs> did you cry? Uh, it was a big moment. It's I mean, I mean, me I know, I know. I mean, I know <laughs> the diner we were in. I know the rest, the table we were at. I've gone uh -huh. back to the diner to uh -huh. get like a menu from there to so give it to my father. I mean, like that's a that's the reason I became a director. And I literally came back uh, to L.A. and I went to USC. And I the uh, the head of admissions had no time to sit down with me, so I like walked her to her car and like. On the way to her car, was like convincing me to uh, convincing her to let me into the school. Semester started three days later, and she let me in the school. Like I put a very, I, I ended with help me come home. I, I would like I really pushed hard. And uh, <laughs> um, do you think that maybe the name Reitman might have helped you a little in that particular? Community? Yeah, it probably did. <laughs> I, I was a pretty good hustler. Maybe. Yeah. I'd like to think I 
my no, my, just if it's my a disingenuous hustling had, <laughs> had something to do with it. But yeah, probably. And but I, I was an English major there, mm-hmm. and I started making short films. The following year, I made a short film called Operation. It was a comedy about kidney stealing, and it got into Sundance. How and short? How short is short? I was sixteen minutes, and. And so that, comedy was the first thing. You, you 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 had an understanding of comedy. Yeah, I liked dark comedy. Uh-huh. And I made five short films, and each one got better, and each one did better. They got into more festivals. They won more awards. So you had a knack for it. Yeah, and I built a name for myself in this kind of indie film community. Like yeah. I was only playing film festivals. It was, it was pretty far away from what my father was doing, and I had no interest in making studio films. Well, it's interesting because your father sort of changed the game for film comedy for everybody. Right. I, even before the movies, I mean, he was directing this show called The National Lampoon Show, which... Oh, he did that yeah, with the, for, the radio show? Uh, no, it was, it, was a live, it was a live sketch Lemmings? show that was not Lemmings. It was called The National Lampoon Comedy Show. It, was, it predated SNL. It had Belushi and it yeah, had uh, Bill Murray and it had Harold Ramis in it and uh, Gilda was in it and... Uh, yeah, he directed that, and uh, and it was a live show. It was a live show. And he did, was that in uh, Canada or New York? I think it was a traveling show. Wow! So he knew all them early on. That's how Bill Murray winds up in Meatballs. Uh huh. And that's how my uh, father's relationship with Harold Ramis starts. That's amazing. Yeah, that's sad that he passed away. It is sad that he passed away. Are we close with that family? I, no, it wasn't that close. It's I, I mean, again, um, I knew Harold Ramis as a coworker of my father <laughs> during a time period of me being like. Two years old to 11 years old. So, uh, and then shortly thereafter, I think Harold moves to Chicago. I mean, uh, it's not as though I spent time with him. I, when I say it's it's sad, I'm saying this, I think, the way that most people feel. But I say that as a film fan, as someone yeah. who knows his movies and yeah. uh, loved Groundhog Day and loved him as an actor. Yeah, it's, and, like, it's interesting because between him and your father, those were the ones. They that, made a lot of important movies. Yeah. Uh, and John Hughes, I yeah. think, um, yeah. really defined uh, yeah. what it was to be funny. Yeah. So, okay, so you go into this, so you make your short films. Now, when you're doing that, you know, are you like, Dad, what do you think? Oh, of course. Uh, no, Dad, I, I, can, can I, we go down to the editing bay? What, what kind of equipment? Not come down to the editing bay, just uh, how much trouble am I in? Yeah, for this, oh, as a filmmaker. With yeah, this piece. yeah, and, and he's, such, he's such an exceptional producer. I think it may be his greatest gift. I think uh, if you look at his work, it's not only what he's done as a director, it's what he's done as yeah. a producer. He's able to he's able to get the best out of people. And if you talk to writers who have worked with him, that is always what they say. They say it's one of the most difficult experiences, one of the most rewarding experiences I've ever had, and no one has ever made me a better version of myself. And, and that's a gift as a son who wants to be a filmmaker, that yeah. that's really like his particular... Oh, yeah. You know, that and, you, it, and it's tough. I mean, it's aggravating when anyone's saying this isn't... Because he... I mean, from moment one... We never made a verbal decision, but th- somehow this decision happened that when he approached my work, he was going to approach it 100% the way as though I were a writer working for him that came in with something. And so he'd... put the baggage aside, the father-son thing. And and there's no point to giving a compliment. Right. Like, there's no use. Yeah. So, so it's just, this is bad. This is killing you. Your five pages too long. Your five minutes too long. I don't know what you're thinking this scene is doing for you right now. Why are you fighting for something that that's horrible? I mean, it's so just going to make you look like a bad director. So he helped your understanding of narrative and story and what it should and shouldn't be. In, and uh, how to be ruthless. Right. Or And, and also economical. Yeah, but I think um, being economical is something that I think is easy to understand. 
I think being ruthless with your work is a more complicated idea and uh-huh. is a tougher lesson. Uh, and and that means like cutting off a limb, saying like you know, God damn it, that scene was the that I thought that was the best thing about this movie. Taking and it's something go. that you love and treating it like something you could butcher, and that's that's really tough. Yeah, I I have that experience in relationships. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you had a choice. You could be successful or you could be in love. That's and you right. made one choice. Yeah, yeah. Too, too many times. All right, so you do the shorts. How many did you do? Like like did you, like what's the for- I made 5 of them and uh uh 3 of them played Sundance and one was particularly successful, won a lot of awards. Which one? It's called In God We Trust. Yeah. And and off of that, I got an agent I got people saying, you know, do you want to uh, do you want to direct these broad comedies? And I only wanted to make Thank You for Smoking. I had read the book. I fell in love with the book. I had this clear idea that if I made this as my first movie, it would identify who I was going to be as a filmmaker. But and also as somebody who, you know, that's a very specific kind of comedy. Well, yeah. No, I remember the, the example I always use is Dude Wears My Car came to me twice. <laughs> and that was a really hard decision because... I mean, it's easy to laugh about, but at the same time, Dude, Where's My Car was a studio film. Yeah. This was an opportunity to get paid to direct. Right. Direct on a on a, on a feature film crew with real crew. Yep. Uh, with real actors. It was going to be in theaters. I could, like, my movie would come out. It would have a DVD. I could go buy a ticket to my movie. All, all the things, all the ephemera of being a filmmaker that yeah. one dreams about was available in directing that movie. But it would mean... From their point on, that's who I'd be, and I would make more movies like that. And to turn that corner, well, you, not only would you make more movies like it, if you pulled that off, mm-hmm. you, you would you would be stuck in that system. Yeah, it's it's strangely easier to suggest I want to make Thank You for Smoking, having never made a movie, yeah. rather than say I want to make Thank You for Smoking, having made you know three broad comedies. Yeah, they'd be like, why? Particularly with actors, because yeah. at the end of the day, actors make movies. So the yeah. whole thing is, can you put yourself in a position where an actor says, I want to work with you? Right. And I want to work with you on that specifically. And having only made some short films, it's, I've written this script, thank you for smoking. I've had some success in the film festival world. Do you want to come with me? Yeah. Versus, I made those broad comedies that you know that were very successful, but yeah. I generally direct kind of silly stuff. Do you trust me with this political, political satire? Yeah. And then they go, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I see what you're sense of humor is and yeah how are you going to do this and how do you how do you turn them well what when you when you looked at that material when you resonated so deeply with that with that book i mean what was what was the through line how did how did you like how did you see like even when you talk about those moments in up in the air and and the moment in juno what was that for <laughs> well, you? thank you for smoking it was more that i just didn't see anything wrong with him i thought there was something lovely that he was a lobbyist for big tobacco i believe the argument that he uses at one point uh with his son or he says you know uh everyone deserves a defense in court well so do big corporations and and i actually kind of buy that as an argument and again i grew up i was in high school in the 90s which was a a, a moment where uh Everything was everything was scary and nothing was safe and it was hammered into our heads that tobacco was evil and at a certain point I just thought, I get it, cigarettes are dangerous, I'm not gonna smoke. Just fuck off already. And 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 I the nanny state really frustrates me and I just I, I read this book and I said, Oh, finally, someone who has a sense of humor about cigarettes. It could have been frankly about Religion, it could have been about alcohol, it could have been about guns. There's, there's so many subjects that... You, you were able to integrate that in? 
a bit. What do you gu- mean? The gun lobby. Yeah. And yeah. no, that was already in the book. I mean, the book is so, is written by Christopher Buckley, who's, who is one of our best satirists, and it was brilliantly funny. And I'm nowhere as funny as that book. I'm not really a funny guy. I don't yeah. think that's the job. I think right. the job is, kind of, job is kind of understanding story and what's humorous. And, you know, as you can see, I mean, nothing about any of my approach to anything I've done has been, oh, well, that's funny. I think I'll be able to get people to laugh with that. I think it's in you. It's got to be in you. I think there's an instant. You know, it's funny. My father said uh, a week before, I keep on saying, my father said, my yeah. father told me, uh, a week before I started shooting Thank You for Smoking, first movie, he called me up and uh, to like for like the last advice call of like, yeah, you're going yeah. to make your first movie. Right. And the big thing that he hit on, which has stayed with me to this day, and I think is not only good advice, advice for... Uh, any artist that's good for like anything is when you're on set, don't worry about what's funny. Don't worry about what's dramatic. What's hor- Your barometer for what is funny will never be strong, but your barometer for truth is very strong. You know when someone's fucking with you. You know when someone's full of shit. And when you watch something, you know when it feels false. And your job as a director is to figure out why does this feel false? Is it because we're starting in the middle of a scene and needed an intro or the opposite? Is it because they're sitting down instead of standing up? Is it because he's on the phone? Is it because she says this one word? She would never actually say that word. I think so often is the case that when you're watching your work and there's a sign that doesn't work in it, 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 it's not because uh, it's not funny enough um, and you need to make it funnier. It's because it's just not truthful. Mm-hmm. It's not right. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, um, that's interesting. That was the because that's like you, you know you that the difference between hearing that and just trusting your intuition. Mm-hmm. It you know it's it's fully supporting you know what you're looking for and it gives it a framework to 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 sort of understand to go to when something's not working as opposed right. to looking at the script or you know why you know maybe if they took a beat here or they took a beat there maybe right. it's just dis- maybe it's just not reading. Right. And then it becomes part of your approach to everything. So yeah. you have a conversation with someone on your crew or someone in your cast. You're not talking to them about how to make it funnier. Right. You're talking to them about how to make this moment more honest. Right. Because inevitably, if they do make it more honest, it will be funnier. Okay. So in that that movie worked out. I thought it was a very successful satire. Yeah, it's funny. I look at that movie now and I struggle with it because I I see the mistakes in it and it's my first movie and I I see the things that I was trying to do that sometimes I miss the mark. Like what? Um, I, I think just sometimes the structure of the story or the shooting or uh. Uh, it's just the, you know lens choices and things that I just know oh or, or the way I directed an actor um, certain things feel arch in a way that I want them to feel more real now yeah and I, I, there's an appreciation for that movie yeah and I'm very grateful for it but at the same time I look at it and see the things I'd want to tweak alright so then with Juno we, you know the lessons that you took from what, what were your, what was your application there uh, outside I, of that moment it's hard to identify um the application because it is it is subtle stuff it's like trying to identify how your guitar playing got better over the years your ability to just hold the frets in a certain way and your ability to kind of hold the body and strong like we it's, build confidence yeah but it's it's your instincts just become better right it, again uh I'll, I'll relate it back to this you you have a scene the purpose of the scene is not actually for the characters to get somewhere because the characters don't exist they're fictitious right so the purpose is to manipulate an audience to get them to feel something right and you're getting them to feel all these points along the way so you get better at being very detailed on how what decisions to make that will in the end get the audience to feel something um 
in the same way that in a comedy routine you get better at, for instance, I remember early on, let's just take laughter. You want someone to laugh. You want to make a joke. You want to get them to laugh. When you're a child, all you want is any kind of laugh. Just you get them to laugh. Right. Great. I succeeded. And then, um, and then it's how fast can I get them to laugh? How long can I, how hard can I get them to laugh? And then it becomes, can I laugh at something that makes them uncomfortable? Can I get them to laugh just in the smallest way at something that's really personal? Mm-hmm. Can I get them to laugh at something they don't believe in? Right. Uh, it becomes how can I get more and more articulated with them getting them to feel? So how you do that is all instinctual and comes from making thousands of micro midair decisions. And also taking chances. Like, you know, right. you got to push. Like, you know, if something, if you're like, oh, that's really dicey. So do you feel like, like that? Uh, uh, see, I don't feel it. Like, do you feel like you're taking chances when you go out there? Or do you just feel like this is what I do? Well, I feel like this is what I do. But I do know sometimes that, you know, that if I'm going to present something mm-hmm. that is you know, fundamentally maybe morally questionable. Right. Or, or, or it's going to be challenging. Like, I need them to know one way or the other that I have resolve around it. Right. You, you, you know, it's not like you, I know that, like, I know when an audience is going to be like, oh, geez. You, like, I know that. I, for whatever reason, I have a blind spot. Uh, I mean, if you look at them, I made a movie about the head lobby. I heroized the head lobbyist for Big Tobacco. I heroized teenage pregnancy. Um, I heroized a guy whose suggestion is that life should be led alone um, and fires people for a living. Uh, and never once did I think... Boy, this might be tricky for an audience to get their heads around. No, but but you but what you sought was the humanity in those characters. I you may not have put it that yeah, way. Yeah, I didn't consciously think about that. But it, that but for the, me, I just thought of them as interesting, romantic, com, you know, compassionate right, right. leads. But that I've never you had, humanized the, these these fundamentally challenging personalities and situations. Right, but I guess it's because in real life, I think of them that way. I don't think I'm take. I never consciously think. Boy, I'm taking a chance. Like even with there's a new project. I'm uh, I'm adapting a book right now that uh-huh. came in. It was written by the author of The Descendants, and she has a new book. It's fantastic. And at the beginning of the book and the beginning of the movie, uh, a woman has lost her 20 year old son in, to an avalanche. And it's a movie about going through grief, and there's a lot of comedy in it. Actually, yeah, grief is hilarious. And I remember my producer Helen saying, "How you saying, relieve it? How you process grief? <laughs> you know, is is yeah. You need oh, and the me. ownership that other people take over your grief. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was kind of a no brainer. I read the book. I loved. it. I was like, I want to adapt this. I want to direct this. But I remember my producer Helen and my father at different points saying, "It's gonna be a little challenging. You're making a movie where you know a woman loses her son on you know on page one, and that didn't." occur to me like that didn't i was like oh like, at least that didn't Wait, what was your first question like why that that's just you know no i had to stop and go oh i see what you're saying people may not want to instinctually see a movie where a, a woman loses her child at the beginning of the movie like for me that's just that's an opportunity for really an interesting story i'd be much more challenged to come up with a reason to go see a marvel movie right that where i'm like why would you want to see a movie about you know people Wearing weird shit, you know, right? Because, like, because and... those are mythological narratives. I mean, what you're dealing with is, you know, a gut punch of humanity right at the beginning, right? And 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 so that sets the stage. And now for... I'm in, <laughs> right? Exactly, <laughs> right? Exactly, right? The tone is set, and it's something that no one can avoid. Loss. Right, right, and it's something and... everyone relates to, 
it isn't discussed about in the way that we want to discuss it. But, th- but that's because people are in profound denial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> about their mortality in general. Right. But these are things that, you know, I don't know. No, I, it's, it, it's, it's, it's selfish, but I don't think I don't think selflessly about my movies in a way that perhaps I should. No, I mean, or clearly, perhaps I no, I don't. don't. I mean, you know, you, you're fighting a fight that you, this this um, this blind spot you have, you know, is, is compelling you. Right. To, right. to 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 challenge yourself and to challenge an audience, even though you don't think of it that way. Right. You know, it's what it's like. It's whatever your father said that was passed down from your grandfather. That's the magic. Right. You know that. You know that compels you creatively. <laughs> I mean, great. If my father said, "Now, when I talked about magic, this is not this is not what I have in mind. <laughs> this is not the magic." Uh, well, let's talk about um, young adult. All right. Your your relationship with it. That's a Diablo Cody script. Yeah, right? yeah, definitely. And you like her. Oh yeah, yeah. I had her no, in her a long time her. ago. Yeah, she's, she's great. She's so smart. So, what was the what was it about that story? Essentially, oh, same thing. I mean, this is a this is a woman. I mean, all right. So again, the one scene, yeah. the reason. Uh, there's a few, but there's one really, which is the the main character of uh, young adult Mavis. Yeah. yeah, has gone through this movie. Um, trying to ruin a marriage. That is the conceit of the film. Your hero is trying to ruin a marriage. And at the moment that she d- realizes... But not- these are tragic heroes. These are... These are yeah, these I guess are, so. And some of them, they're categorically anti-heroes. If you believe in the idea that people are tragic or not tragic, rather than we're all complicated, we all go after fucked up shit, yeah. we have desires, some of them are right, some of them are wrong, we right. don't categorize them and within ourselves, and I guess I don't for characters. Yeah. So she's... Do I have friends who are... Sorry, am I as guilty of wanting things that are as bad as Mavis? Yeah. Of course. Yeah. And sometimes I go after them, sometimes I don't. Right. And I have my good days and my bad days. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who the yeah. hell doesn't? Right. So she's trying to ruin a marriage. She finds out that this is not going to work, that she's not going to be successful. And she actually comes to a realization that she needs to find something truer in her life and something real and be close to people that she cares about and all these things. And she spends the night with Patton Oswalt's character. Yeah. And they're the only, they they have a, a unique and beautiful bond. Uh, there's something, there's an ugliness inside each of them that connects with each other. And they have true love. And she wakes up the following morning. And this should be the moment that she goes on with the rest of her life and everything is great. And Patton Oswalt's sister, a character we barely know, played beautifully by Colette Wolfe convinces her to go back to being the original person that she was at the beginning of the movie and she gets in her car and she drives off end the movie and I was like yes that is a movie I want to make because that's what people do we get we get this close we get all the information we get all the opportunity to change into you know theoretically better people and we make a 5% change you know we yeah. you know we go to the organic you know section of the grocery right. but we don't make full life changes we 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 make these tiny uh, changes and that's fine, but uh, but it's a mistake to believe that we make changes the way characters in movies often do. That's right. Yeah, and and uh, so you were fighting that. Oh, I loved that. I loved. I loved. And and Charlize got it immediately and knew what we were doing. She's great. She really is. Yeah, she's so astounding. sharp. I, at first, I mean, I mean, first second time I met her, the first joke she ever told me, she's like, "Hey, Jason, what's worse than a paper cut?" And I said, "What?" And she goes, "AIDS." <laughs> like. <laughs> I love you. I was just like, I was in. I was like, you get it. You yeah. get the joke. You get what we're doing here. And she was just, and she and Patton got along amazing. Yeah. And yeah, it's great. 
Well, all right. So now let's go back to your personal life. So you're 16. <laughs> yeah. And you start dating this woman who's what, 10 years younger or older, older 10 yeah. years older. Yeah. And it becomes very serious. Yeah. And your father says what? It's interesting. Uh, <laughs> I think there's a moment where your son's dating a 26-year-old, just 10 years older than him, where you're like, oh, way to go. You know, yeah, like yeah. there's a moment. So he went on a date. That's yeah, kind of fun. Yeah. But then it gets serious, and I move in with her while I'm still in high school. And I think my father, I only know this kind of having conversations after the fact. And my father felt very divided about what to do. He didn't want to push me towards her. And he knew if he really put his foot down, because I'm a stubborn guy. I mean, I'm, you know, and particularly at that time. Cynical? If, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm a little <laughs> bit cynical, although I have a big heart. I'm sensitive. I think if he had pushed really hard on me, I would have ran to her and, and maybe fucked up my life. And, and yet he couldn't sit there and go, that's good. This is a great idea. You should spend all this time with an older woman and miss out on all the things you're supposed to learn right now. Yeah. And I really, like, I didn't try pot till I was 30. Like, there's a lot of things that I never just did because I I was with this woman who would, would have thought it was silly if I wanted to go to, like, a frat party. Or, like, you know, it just, that wasn't the life I was living. So you're so, judging yourself against her as opposed to your contemporaries you oh, know, that she had been through. I only spent time with her. I never, I, li- I literally never went to a single party in high school, what never did, went to a party in college. What did your mother think? Uh, she hated her. <laughs> I mean, they both did. They both thought that this is a woman who was stealing their son's childhood. And at the same time, I was stubborn and I was smart. And if you'd come to me to argue about it, it wasn't like you were going to win me over. Yeah. Uh, I would have gotten angrier and, and ran further. And, and my father talked to me about like t- he would talk to his friends and try to figure out what the right thing was to do and i presented him with a very difficult situation yeah and but it wasn't drugs yeah here's <laughs> and at the same time not drink didn't really drink till i was 30 yeah never tried you weren't being you know, criminal drugs wasn't smoking wasn't a criminal did great in school got into all the colleges i applied to like i you know when i moved into third i got a job like it was just like so on some level, in retrospect, you know, in retrospect, yeah. you might have been taking care of yourself in some weird way. I This is what I know. <laughs> I probably wouldn't be a director if that didn't happen. Uh-huh. I spent all this time trying to figure out this woman who was 10 years older than me, who had her own issues, and, and, and you could, like, all my films are about trying to figure out women as well, and it starts with her, and she prevented, she, she prevented me from kind of being a fuck-up, and... Going to parties and just getting into stupid stuff and going Force to Force you to be an adult and, in a way. Yeah. I mean, she's the woman who took me to see Citizen Ruth and, and said, Alexander Payne, he's going to be important. You got to remember his name. He's going to be important to you. And she was absolutely right. So she she grew me up. She taught me a lot. She kept me from being a, a screw up. And and at the same time, it, it took a lot for me. And Yeah. And was she in the business? No. And do you still- are No. You, <laughs> no, no way. <laughs> no, I mean, I should have left, you know, her a lot earlier than yeah. I did. But it got, I was, it got I was, ugly. But I was scared. Yeah, uh, I was scared to leave. Yeah. So this is going to be your whole conversation with my dad now. I'm just realizing. <laughs> so, why didn't you get involved in your sex? <laughs> no, but I think you're right. There's a, what, what the hell are they going to do? Yeah, I mean, it's not as easy it. as drugs. I, I think, it, and not to say that drugs are easy, but it's not as there isn't a put him in rehab or make sure he's not on that stuff or like this. It's, uh, and also, they're going to blame her. Yeah, and I'm sitting there going, 
I'm in love. I'm happy. She's not screwing anything up. I'm keeping everything above board. Like, so it's a, unless you go, we're calling the cops. This is statutory rape. Right. They could have done that. They could have done that. But then what do you do? Now your parents put your girlfriend in jail. Right. <laughs> you know, then, what? Yeah. what's your relationship with your parents? And instead, my mother and my father and I are really close. Yeah. So I, I, I suppose they did the, the right thing and the only thing they could do. And, and you know, it's, it, if you honestly believe that, it, it sounds like somehow or another this woman enabled you to maybe grow up sooner than you might have needed to, but but she probably saved you a lot of fucking aggravation. Yeah. I mean, all the mistakes I should have made, I didn't make. Mm-hmm. And 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 developed that and, and also pushed me and kind of, I got angry at the time, I got competitive, and that probably is part of what got me in a room writing. And do you find that, like, the anger thing, you know, you have the anger thing. Mm-hmm. And you say that a lot of your initial projects were the fuck you thing. Now, how, you, you know, how did that, did that, that played out with her too? You guys fight a lot? No, I'm not. I, I'm, I'm, I'm so scared of fighting yeah. that I, I go into a room and I write. Oh, that's good. I remember, I remember, it's going to make no sense, but yeah. I remember thinking, I need to write a script so good that I can leave her. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't make any sense, but but that's what I thought. And I would sit there um and watch movies that were great and would piss me off. They were so good and like I would what? think about I don't know. I mean like American Beauty or yeah. Goodwill Hunting. I mean right. at the time they were really modern movies. Yeah. Later on it became older ones. But um So yeah. you didn't think you could leave in, in yeah, I, I like I can't I can't make sense out of that thought, but no, that's I, what I know the, the feeling. But yeah. that's what the thought that was in my head, and and I and it certainly wasn't now. Now, if I was having issues with someone I was with romantically, I would talk to them about it, and I would be a little. I'd still be scared, but I'd be at least confident enough to push the fear aside and open up and talk to them about it. At the time, I didn't know how to do any of that, and I just uh, I was wow. scared. Well, I, I you should you no know, thank you note. You never sent it. And she was ten years older than me, also. So yeah. at the end of the day, it's like I'm not—I I was going to lose any fight. You're twenty; she's thirty. She's got she is a huge advantage psychologically. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, no, she's I got you know. It's like you're in over your head, but it like completely. It, and but it, it 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 defines you. And I wanted to be taken seriously, and she took me seriously. I I'm 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 supportive of that relationship. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it got me here, yeah. uh, and uh, you know. I think about all the, all the people who, all the young people I knew who were in similar situations, the sons or daughters of uh, people who had been very successful, and the, the ways that so many of them have stumbled, and I feel very lucky that whatever has happened, happened in the way that it did. And, and you and your father are tight. And, you know, really tight. And you know, he's a tremendous resource, and now you're producing, I imagine that as well, that language. Mm-hmm. He's very helpful in as well. Yeah, but I'm just, uh, I'm nowhere, I, I can't produce the way he does. He no, just, I, I'm just saying it's good. Uh, it's <laughs> not, I, I'm just, yeah, no, I'm just fortunate. <laughs> you, you insist on drawing this wide. So, yeah, but I'm not, it's, I'm not nowhere near his. No, look, I think there's things that I do better than him, but I know the things oh, yeah? that he does what? a lot better than me. What do you do better than him? Um, uh, Finger picking at the guitar? No. Uh-huh. Uh, I think um, I think there's a type of scene that I know how to do, that I know how to do well. Uh-huh. Uh, it's that scene at the end of Young Adult. Uh-huh. Um, I don't think my father would know what to do with that scene. 
But it, it that comes from also where we grew up. Again, so my father, my father is born on the border of Czechoslovakia and Hungary. The his parents are Holocaust survivors. He's uh, they have to escape when he's four years old because of anti-Semitism. My grandfather pays off a boat owner to op- pull up the floorboards of his boat, and they hide under the floorboards, and he arrives in Canada and just wants to make people fucking happy. And that's his movies. You go into his movie, and like you come out a better person, a happier person than when you walked in. Right. And that is the result of someone who shows up, uh, an immigrant in Canada, not knowing a single word of English. And With Holocaust It's just survivors. like, please, just love me. And yeah. I grew up lucky. I grew up in Beverly Hills. Sure, I'm, you know, yeah. I'm fortunate enough to say, I'm going to make movies with, you know, unhappy endings that yeah. <laughs> where we heroize these horrible people. It's a lot easier to do that when you're not worried about where your next dollar is going to come from and when you kind of already live in a very nice place. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so like he, like he, I don't know that he even think to do that at the end of a movie. No, why would you do that? <laughs> I, the, I mean, the best way I've 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 ever been able to articulate is this: um, my father wants to take your favorite song yeah. and play it better than you've ever heard. I want to take your least favorite song and play it so good that you like it. I think that's great. <laughs> Thanks for talking to me, man. Absolutely, uh, I had no idea what to expect, but that was a pleasure. That's it. That's our show. Uh, look forward, folks. Look forward to, to hearing, you know, Ivan Reitman's take on some of the things Jason talked about and just feeling the, the, the relationship between the two and the two different conversations. I was fascinated by it, and it made me wish I had a better relationship with my dad. Go to WTF Pod for all your WTF Pod needs. Get a little JustCoffee.coop. Get the WTF plan. I get a little bit on the back end of that. And, uh, you know, poke around. Get the app. Do what you got to do, man. Do what you got to do. Boomer lives. 